When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait! And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking, I just can't cope with the freaky stuff. We're talking, North America's getting soft, Patron. And we're talking... Max Wren has two daddies. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking Debbie fucking Harry, who yes. needs more screen time in this movie. I mean, it's a common complaint, but god damn, does she pop off the screen. So good, everyone. We are discussing, finally, uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this week and kicking off our, what, what are we calling this, Joe? Our month of weird sex for our birthdays? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you add for our birthdays, it makes it sound very weird. But <laughs> yes, we're doing nothing but weird sex films this month, folks. And one could argue we just do that every month. But these ones are particularly weird and unusual. We're getting the heavy shit out of the way for the first two weeks and then ending with what the fuckery in the last two. I mean... All of these are what the fuckery. But mm -hmm. uh, of course, if you want to know the whole schedule in advance, please go to our Patreon and subscribe because you'll know the whole schedule then. There you go. Yes. And of course, we would be remiss to not mention that we're covering Daddy Cronenberg on the main feed and we're going to be covering baby Cronenberg. Ooh, that sounds wrong. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be covering his son on the Patreon because we are going to be talking about Infinity Pool, Brandon Cronenberg's new film as well. Man, I never thought I'd have this much Cronenberg in my life. And Joe, Joe this, this is, I mean, this is a movie that I think, feel like we've talked about a lot that mm -hmm. I know you like, but I have mm -hmm. been very vocal about my distaste for. This is true. You have tried to put this off for several years <laughs> and then you finally consented when i was like baby it's the 40th anniversary and it's like coming right like this week's episode and next week's episode fall between my birthday and i was like you gotta let me do another cronenberg and it's gotta be this one you know what that's totally fair uh i i, I will say going into this i bought the criterion blu-ray because i'm mm -hmm. you know i'm a good student and i do my research sure and I was like, oh, my God, it's 88 minutes. This I remember this being like a two and a half hour movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say it's a long film, though. Like, it feels mentally taxing. It's a challenging film. It's not easy. And here's the thing. You know, when you said, 
I didn't enjoy watching this when I was younger. I totally got it. Like I had to watch this movie in I think my first or second year of film class. Mm -hmm. And it's not accessible. Like I think it's actually really challenging for people because you go in thinking it's going to be something and it kind of aggressively isn't. Well, this is one of those films where I put my guard down for my rewatch and I watched this twice. So what I did mm -hmm. was um, we're covering this right as I get back from Sundance. And so I watched it, no note taking, just to be like, okay, I'm just going to watch this movie on its own terms right before I left. Right. I went to Sundance, did all my shit, and then I came back and said, cool, now I've let it sink in. I'm going to watch it again. I'm going to take mm -hmm. notes and, you know, do my normal podcast stuff. Sure. You will be happy to know that this movie has risen considerably in my esteem. <laughs> I, I I can say it with, without a doubt, I like this movie. Now, in fact, I really hey. like this movie now. Nice. But you're right. I don't think this is an easy film. And I will confess, I do think that my first watch, which would have been probably seven years ago, mm -hmm. I think I did not know what to make of this film. I think I was very right. confused and I was not willing to do the work to really like unpack this, which is what we're going to do today. But mm -hmm. I've at least done some of that beforehand already so um I, <laughs> there we go <laughs> you know, I, I i i was very fascinated i will actually say too um it went faster for me on my third viewing because it's really for this 88 minutes it's really pretty evenly divided into acts although mm -hmm. i do try to figure out the point I'm like when do i lose track of this right. movie and this i think that <laughs> might be the case for some of our maybe our new viewers our videodrome virgins here today mm. yeah yeah because i would say it starts off not conventionally, but in a way that you can more or less follow the story. Like, mm -hmm. it is accessible in that fashion. And then we start to get into hallucinations. And then you've got to start to contend with, okay, how am I feeling about what is real, what isn't? It starts to get very jarring and disconnected, in part because we are so closely connected to this James Wood character. Mm -hmm. Also, yes, everyone, we're acknowledging yes. James Wood, human piece of shit. I feel about him the same way that I felt about um, like Hocus Pocus, right? Where we're going to cover the film. We can acknowledge that this person is not great, mm -hmm. uh, but there's still conversations to be had about the work of art. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, James, James Woods is a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and he is a vocal piece of shit. Yes. And it's just one of those things where unfortunately, like, um, yeah, we are stuck with it. But you know what? Look at everything else outside of the James Woods of it all going into this film. We have Rick right. Baker practical effects. We have Cronenberg writing and directing. We have Debbie fucking Harry mm -hmm. in a very, not a rare film role, but a rare, rare film role like this. Right. Yeah. I mean, she's very much playing on her rocker chic and she's highly sexualized. Although, mm -hmm. uh, again, I would argue everything is really focalized through Max's perspective. So yeah. how much of this is actually her versus his fantasy idealized version of her is up for debate. But yeah, she is so magnetic. And I think that's one of the reasons why when you watch it that first time, you think, okay, Nikki, she's like, yeah, femme fatale. she's going to be in this. And then she just kind of fucks off at one point. And you're like, wait, where, what? Debbie? What? Yeah. Debbie, where'd you go? <laughs> we only get, I want to say, two, maybe three scenes with mm -hmm. Nikki, the real Nikki, again, quote, right. quote, unquote, because everything we see afterwards, we don't know if it's actually her. If it's, I, I have questions about the role of videos in this movie because, mm -hmm. I mean, we'll talk about it, but it's like 
the whole Brian Oblivion character. And it's like, oh, he recorded like 10,000 tapes just to, mm-hmm. for, for any possible scenario. And I'm like, yeah, but literally like um, you got to suspend your disbelief a little bit for that television interview. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. It's one of those things where I think with enough advanced planning and knowing what the questions were, you could maybe prep for it, but not off the cup. I mean, like what well, the is timing. Bianca doing backstage? <laughs> yeah, the timing. He's, he's like, okay, uh, she's probably going to ask me this question at this point in time and I'll answer this question right now okay Mm -hmm. let's go Ten thousand of these yeah i mean this would have been impressive nowadays never mind back in 1983 yeah yes 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 so okay well let's go into this okay so the basis for videodrome came from cronenberg's childhood um he picked up american television signals from buffalo new york late at night after canadian stations had gone off the air and Mm -hmm. he was worried he might see something disturbing not meant for public consumption and he was fascinated with this idea of people locking themselves in a room and turning a key on a television set so that they can watch something extremely dark and by doing that allowing themselves to explore their fascinations and this feels very Cronenbergian in and of itself doesn't it oh for sure yeah people unlocking hidden parts of themselves often sexual often horrific yeah Classic. well this this film is very much about yeah like what are our our hidden desires we are all ashamed of our desires so we have to watch them in these kind of like whatever Videodrome is, like these pirated Malaysian uh, frequency waves. And then, of course, we get punished for it. Hmm. Yes. And also, I mean, it's important to remember in 1983, obviously TV wasn't new, but like the VHS market was really just starting to come to the forefront. So this idea that you could record things, you could capture things, you could rewatch things, Mm -hmm. very novel. And it also changes the way that we interact with things. And you're going to hear me uh, harp on this in part because this movie is so fucking Canadian, but it's also very indebted to a Canadian philosopher and, uh, Uh, basically one of the godfathers of like communications theory got it well that's interesting that you mentioned the like like, innovation of like video recording because uh, i watched some of the special features on this blu-ray and one of the things is like i guess movie studios and television studios were trying to sue the makers of vcrs and Mm -hmm. trying to get them to remove the record button from the devices oh sure yeah yeah and even like they didn't want people to be able to re-record over things so it's like they wanted to have vhs as if they couldn't stop people from recording that it was like you could record things once and then like the tab would break so that you could only do one recording and so on it's a whole to do and that goes into discussions of piracy because it's like mm-hmm. like what were they thinking about that in 1983 uh it's just like it's it's such a weird world <laughs> that we right. lived in and back in the 80s Mm-hmm. And so much of the the rules and the ideas of this film are still really present nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's timeless in a way. Yeah. So Cronenberg wrote a treatment titled Network of Blood in the early 70s, which explored oh God, the themes. <laughs> no, I <laughs> It explored the themes of the branding of sex and violence and media impacting people's reality. So the premise was that a worker for an independent television company who would eventually become the Max Rin character played by James Woods unintentionally finds a private television network subscribed to by strange, wealthy people who mm. are willing to pay to see bizarre things. And okay. Yeah, right. Because I feel like there would be a class critique implemented in there that right. we, of course, don't have in this final product of Videodrome. No. Um, He later planned the story to be told from the main character's first-person perspective, showcasing a duality between how insane he looks to other people and how he himself perceives a different reality in his head. 
The fictional station of Videodrome, Civic TV, was modeled after the real-life Canadian television network. Um, let me know if you heard of this, Joe. City TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Still around, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it is. And this station was known for broadcasting pornographic content and violent films in its late-night programming blocks. And I think this is where part of my confusion came the first time watching this film, where I was like, I guess maybe because I knew going in, Videodrome was real-life snuff film. Mm-hmm. I was surprised and, like, annoyed that the characters didn't seem to pick up on that right off the bat. Like, when he's like, right. where's the plot? I'm like, dude, it's a snuff film. Like, what plot is there going to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's very much a device that we're meant to uncover midway through the film. So I could understand you might even be antsy. Like, well, when are they just going to figure out what I already know? <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I just assumed that they would already know. So I'm like, what are why are y'all acting like this is normal? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, so Cronenberg's reputation with films like 1981 Scanners made it easier for his projects to get produced, leading to Videodrome's $5 million budget, more interesting studios and producers, and a larger number of interested actors to choose from. And Scanners, for comparison's sake, uh, made $14.2 million on a $3.5 million budget. So he gets a $2 million bump on Videodrome. Yeah. I mean, it's important to remember, too, that at this point, Canadians were still not really making genre films. Like, uh, Cronenberg kind of broke that I was mold say, for right? us. But he was also kind of the only person who had skin in the game for a long period of time. In part because Canadians, uh, like a lot of Commonwealth countries, we have this uncomfortable relationship with sex and violence we also think it's very american so there's a bunch of canadian commentary about like oh max ren he's really almost more of an american figure which is ironic that cronenberg cast an american actor i'm curious so uh, canadians think that like sex and violence is an american thing because i i I only ask and i'm trying to get clarification because to Mm -hmm. me the violence i get but the sexuality i feel like because like canadians have like that french mindset like Mm. i feel like sexuality be a bit more maybe more open-minded with the sexuality part of it um i mean i guess it depends on the timing but like Mm. particularly in films like i think i've mentioned this before and it's ironic that we're doing this in this month where we're talking (laughs) about weird sex films but like there's a famous canadian film book called weird sex and snowshoes because canadian films are notorious for capturing weird facets of sexuality like um we infamously have uh the sweet hereafter which was an oscar nominated film which is like secretly about incest with sarah Mm polly uh we have another movie called kissed which is about a female coroner who has sex with corpses so it's like we're, we're renowned for having these artsy films that intersect with sexuality but in weird uncomfortable kind of fucked up ways and Cronenberg is definitely falling into that category but when you talk about things like oh traditional sexy fare mm-hmm. like you're smut that's yeah. gonna be ooh, you know, oh it's kind of like the line from drop dead gorgeous you know like oh the, this leave it to the sin cities leave it to the sin <laughs> countries like usa right so canada does classy sex america does smuts. yes okay re- you know what i could have just said that <laughs> Um, anecdote that I'm sure everyone knows but I did not Um, Cronenberg was approached to direct Return of the Jedi and turned it down in favor of doing Videodrome Mm -hmm. yeah he and David Lynch were both like very active at this point in their careers and it's like Lynch ends up making Dune and it's a horrible experience for him and then he immediately goes back to making indie films and Cronenberg never really 
does that or at least he doesn't until like the mid 90s when he starts to make like more conventional artistic fare i would even say it's like the 2000s like it's like after eastern promises when cronenberg really starts mm. doing it. i mean I, I guess i guess those are studio films like eastern promises right. history of violence but like and they are more accessible even though they are very upsetting films but i don't think he starts um what, what quote unquote selling out until after that <laughs> Uh, I mean, for Canadians of a certain ilk, they would say that that is him selling out because mm. those films are distinctively not Canadian anymore. Gotcha. He's making them in Hollywood. That makes sense. Well, he met with Canadian film producer Pierre David in Montreal to discuss ideas for a new film, and he pitched the idea for Videodrome. So he started writing the first draft of the script in January of 81, and as with first drafts of Cronenberg's prior projects, he included many parts not featured in the final cut to make it more acceptable for audiences. <laughs> um, this included Ren having an explosive grenade as a hand after he chops off his flesh gun during a hallucination. Mm. Rin and Nikki melting via a kiss into Ooh. an object that melts an onlooker. <laughs> I could have totally seen that, actually. Right. That seems very um, something that um, Paul Verhoeven was going to do shortly with Robocop. Right. Yeah. There were five other characters besides Barry also dying of cancer, uh, which, again, like we've been doing the research. I didn't realize that's what killed Convex in this film. I was like, OK, I guess he just dies <laughs> oh okay so um yeah everyone pay attention to movies when you watch them uh <laughs> cronenberg admitted that he was worried that the project would be rejected by the montreal-based production company film plan due to the excessive violent content of an early draft but it was approved and there we go we got it and we got an r rating for this movie as well wow yeah uh, accumulation of the cast and crew started that summer of 81 in Toronto, your neck of the woods, with most of the supporting actors being local performers of the city. And I feel like that's what we always see, right? Like, they get their leads mm -hmm. from Hollywood, but then all the uh, – any side character extras are all just locals of Canada. Yeah, I mean, part of this is that's how you secure Canadian funding. So you have to meet certain criteria uh, or thresholds. So mm -hmm. part of the way that you do that is you say, well, I need to sell the movie. So I need a big American star. But then in order to get financing from the Canadian and provincial governments, I need to populate it with Canadian talent so that I like check enough quotas. Right, right, right. That It's Commonwealth, right? That's what it is um yeah i mean it's a standard practice throughout the uk and australia and canada but like here specifically in canada we say like okay this is what you need to do specifically to get money in our country right honestly it's, i work so much better with that i'm like cool like there here's your rules here's your guideline do them and boom here's your money but mm -hmm. i mean important to remember we don't have studios here Right, exactly. Yeah, we we have that famed studio system. Woo! Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, Videodrome's three producers suggested that James uh, Wood should play the role of Max, and and this is because though they tried to attach him to another film they were all working on at the same time in 1982 called Models, but it didn't work out. So this was hmm. like their backup for James Woods. Oh, weird. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make this sexy movie called Models. Come make this totally fucked up movie with David Cronenberg. Exactly. And Woods had already said his point of reference for Cronenberg was Rabbit, and he liked right. Rabbit. So he was like, yeah, sure, I'll do this movie. Which is funnier because that is a sexier movie. And I have not seen that. I've seen, I think we've talked about this. What have we talked about? We've talked about The Brood. We've talked about uh, Dead Ringers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, we've got The Fly, and then technically we have a guest spot on the Windsor Film Club when we talked about Crash. Yes! Oh my god. Oh, yes, everyone. Oh my god. Go watch Crash. <laughs> my favorite. 
<laughs> um, so yeah, Cronenberg met with Woods in Beverly Hills, and Cronenberg uh, just liked him, so they got along well. Um, I don't really know if there was a full audition for this, but um, they vibed. So enter Woods. Mm-hmm. For Debbie Harry, he viewed her two times in Union City, a movie from 1980, and had her audition in Toronto. But while she hadn't had a part like this before, she is actually on record saying that James Woods helped her a lot, giving her a lot of tips during the filming. Hmm. Okay. So they start shooting in October of 1981 and end in December of that same year, with the initial week of filming being devoted to videotaping various monitor inserts, meaning <laughs> the things we would see on the TV screen. So like yeah. the samurai video we start with, a lot of the Videodrome segments, um, things like that. Right. Cinematographer Mark Irwin. Now, this guy, we've actually talked about him a couple times. I mean, movies he's done. He's, of course, been a Cronenberg mainstay. He did The Brood, Scanners, Dead Zone, The Fly. Mm-hmm. He also shot the the Blob remake, uh, Wes oh. Craven's Wes Craven's New Nightmare, mm. and Scream. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Because after after Scream one, that's when Patrick Lussier comes in. But it was I Mark Irwin who did the first Scream. Interesting. But he was apparently very uncomfortable doing these scenes. Uh, not for the reasons you think, though. <laughs> okay. Okay. I went there. That's what I thought. I know. I, I thought the same thing. I was like, yeah, he's shooting a bunch of, like, sex and violence. Maybe he's, like, got desensitized and Videodrome needs to happen and kill all of us. I don't know. Hmm. But he was far more experienced with composing shots for regular film cameras than videotapes. And oh. he disliked the flat television standards of lighting and color and could not compose his shots privately as all of the film crew watched the monitors as the shots were being set up. So he was right. like, you're in my space. <laughs> <laughs> I normally do this independently and not with an audience. Exactly. Uh, makeup effects, as I already said, were done by Rick Baker. His crew composed of mostly 20-year-olds, some <laughs> of whom have worked with him on the just recently released an American Werewolf in London. Mm, never heard of it. Yeah, no, never heard of it at all. Actually, that, that's probably going to be something we cover one day too, right? There's queer oh, shit. Oh, absolutely. It's so homoerotic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I don't talk about the score a lot, but this is, I. this was fascinating to me. I don't know what it all means, but it sounds cool. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the original score was composed by Howard Shore and it's Cronenberg's Naturally. close friend. He'd done a lot of Cronenberg's work, but obviously has gone on to do Many, many, many famous and Oscar-winning things. So, the score was composed to follow Max Wren's descent into video hallucinations, starting out with dramatic orchestral music that increasingly incorporates and eventually emphasizes electronic instrumentation. But... Hmm. To achieve this, Shore composed the entire score for an orchestra before programming it into a synclavier two digital synthesizer. And then uh-huh. he rendered the score taken from the, the synthesizer and then recorded it being played in tandem with a small string section. The resulting sound was a subtle blend that often made it difficult to tell which sounds were real and which were synthesized, thereby mirroring the actual plot of the film. Oh my god. That I know! Fascinating. <laughs> like, you're just like, oh, it's a score, or whatever. They're just playing on little musics and keyboards, like, whatever. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh my god, so belittling. <laughs> this is wild. <laughs> <laughs> Um, critics, so we have a good reception. I mean, we got an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 7.4 out of 10. Um, mm-hmm. I know Ebert did not like this movie, unsurprisingly, no, but didn't. yeah. The film comes out on February 4th, 1983. We've got an 87 minute runtime and it opens in the number eight slot with $1.2 million in 600 theaters. However, honestly, like this isn't 
terrible. I mean, this obviously is not Cronenberg's success because it goes on to make about $2.1 million against that $5.5 million budget. So this mm-hmm. definitely found success later in life. Yes. But like just like the number one movie that weekend was Tootsie in its eighth week of release with $6 million, you know? Wow. Yeah. Number two, by the way, was the uh, ghost rape movie with Barbara Hershey, The Entity, with three Ooh, points. Jesus <laughs> so, so, so Videodrome and The Entity open on the same weekends, but everyone decided, <laughs> no, I want to go watch Barbara Hershey get raped a bunch, um, but not this David Cronenberg weird sex VHS movie. Right. I don't want to. I would rather watch Barbara Hershey get raped as opposed to James Woods get raped. Exactly. Exactly. Right. We are looking uh, also at a 7.8 out of 10 on Letterboxd, by the way. So, um, again, this film is regarded a classic. It's why it's in the Criterion selection. Mm -hmm. And, you know, essays upon essays have been written about this film. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, I think this is probably considered the first real classic of Cronenberg's career. Uh, I personally would argue that The Brood came first. But people tend to fixate on this because it's like... A really good synthesis of a lot of his other interests, but condensed through a more like fleshed out main character. Like he tends to do kind of weird ensembles for the most part and or thinly sketch multiple perspective protagonists, Mm -hmm. whereas this is like the Max Ren show. Exactly. And, you know, I've only seen Scanners once. I think it's fine from what I remember, but I also think that's probably the most easily accessible film between this The Brood and Scanners. Yeah, I can't comment. Actually, Scanners is one of the ones I haven't seen yet. It's it's um, honestly, it might be his infinity pool. Oh, really? OK. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there was a novelization of this as there were there were novelizations of many horror films, especially of this time period. Right. I only bring it up, though, is because um, so the book was written by horror novelist Dennis Etchison, and there are extra scenes in that book, not because he made them up, but because he had an earlier draft of the screenplay. And so some oh. of these scenes were cut out. Mm-hmm. But um, there were like there was a scene uh, like a bathtub sequence um in a never filmed in which a television rises from Max's bathtub like in uh Sandro Botticelli's The Birth of Venus film. Oh, okay. But yeah, those are the stuff. So if you, if you're really curious, like go find that novelization. And you might be able to find like extra scenes that were originally in this screenplay. Hmm. Yeah, and we'll talk about the multiple endings and the ones that were never shot when we get to the end. Yeah, I I found I was like I saw the list. I was like, oh, there were three endings, but I couldn't. I could only read like one and a half of them. I couldn't mm-hmm. tell what they were. So I'm glad you have that. I mean, I don't have all of it. I have what you have. Oh well. Okay then. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> the one that we do have is, I think, quite interesting. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. But hey, let's. Oh my God. Let's talk about what happens in Videodrome. Oh, boy. Okay. So I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm drawing on three different pieces for this. So I'm going to reference Cyrus Cohen's Existence Videodrome and the Panic of Penetration from The Gay Gaze, as well as Willow McClay's Body Talk Conversations on Transgender Cinema with Caden Cardner, Ah. Part 6, Curtsies and Hand Grenades. Did you read that one? Oh, no, I, I was just going, ooh, ah. <laughs> ooh, ah, okay, okay. And, of course, my standby is always William Beards, the artist as monster, the cinema of David Cronenberg. I cannot emphasize enough how good that book is. If you are going to watch or just engage with David Cronenberg's work, it's like he literally has a chapter on every single film. It's great. Mm, all right, so you got an ooh, an ah, and an mm from me. So I'm looking forward to this. Fantastic. <laughs> all right, well, let's... 
<laughs> Let's begin then. So we open with an ad for Civic TV Channel 83, and then we transition into a wake-up message. So <laughs> this is one of those, like, the future will consist of video wake-up messages that your secretary will play for you. <laughs> That's the thing, right? So th- this this film, we don't start with an opening scrawl, like, mm-hmm. in the near future, blah, blah, blah. Nope. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, we're, this movie just throws you it's in. It's now. There's very little hand-holding. And so that's – on a first viewing, I was so confused about what was normal and maybe mm-hmm. what I was just – what I was missing about, like, oh, maybe that was a thing in the 80s that I just didn't know about. I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah, because so much of the rest of this plays, like, what 1983 looks like. It's not mm-hmm. the far future. It's not dystopia. It's just kind of, like, gently augmented – so, um, yes, yeah, so this is Bridie James. She's played by Julie Kainer, and she is the secretary of Max Wren, as we said, played by James Woods. Mm-hmm. And we go through an early morning routine with him. So he's got coffee, stale pizza, and he's looking at porn because he's going to go to this CD motel to meet with a representative of Hiroshima Video to screen a new potential buy called samurai dreams i'm curious do we think the naming of hiroshima is intentional oh a hundred percent yes okay okay um yeah i i I don't know exactly what the mindset of the united i guess canada was of Mm -hmm. the japanese in 1983 but like we're we're removed from world war ii but not that far removed from world war ii so to me this is just a bit of a racist play on Max's perspective, where he thinks that Orientalism is something that is exotic, and therefore he can sell it. Yeah, but, well, I guess we'll talk about Videodrome's origins from Malaysia when Mm -hmm. we get there, too. Oh, oh, yes, I, I have thoughts on that as well. I would argue it's the same vein, and then the fact that it's actually coming out from Pittsburgh is something hilarious and also deeply canadian well so is is it cronenberg doing a commentary on xenophobia or is mm-hmm. is it the film being xenophobic no it's cronenberg okay. saying max wren is xenophobic got it got it got it got it okay gotcha or not not even like xenophobic because well, he's yeah. not like he's not scared of those people coming here he's actually more like how can i sell things that look exotic to white people yeah okay yeah because he's a showman mm-hmm <laughs> okay so yes he he goes to this meeting and he screens tapes so it's like we just get the sense that he's a very shady kind of like he's literally going to these meetings in person even though he's running this station well i was just like well, why aren't you just communicating with them through tv telephones because it's apparently mm-hmm. a thing that exists in this world <laughs> Right, but they're always pre-recorded, so you're not actually interacting with people unless you're Professor Oblivion. I was gonna, well, or, or honestly, it's a convex because doesn't he talk to him in the car through the car TV? So, uh, well, we'll get okay, there. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I don't actually think it's a conversation. I think that's just a pre-recorded tape. Oh my god, this fucking movie! I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so from this meeting, we transition from this tape, Samurai Dreams, into the boardroom. So it's like he's watching it in this seedy motel, and then we use the tape to transition into this boardroom meeting where he's screening it for two of his colleagues at the station, and they're having this debate about whether it's soft or hard. And this is an important language choice because everything in this film is centered around relationships of like S&M and Mm -hmm. kink but like within that community obviously soft and hard means important things so is soft um so soft is going to be like basically your your masochists or 
the mashes of this movie, right? Uh-huh. Where she wants to make beautiful artwork, but it doesn't have enough hard hitting things. Right. Max is somebody who very much wants something that's hard because he thinks that that's what well, A, I believe he firmly thinks he's catering to a primarily male audience, mm-hmm. and he thinks that the harder, the more savage, the more brutal, the more it's going to sell, because that's what people really want. Well, and also because he's seen everything, so he's been desensitized, right. so it's only the hard stuff that's going to really like affect him, if, if anything. Exactly. So... From this, enter Videodrome, which is a pirated signal that satellite operator Harlan, Peter Dvorsky, has found. And he's he stumbled on it, but he is working up the technology to be able to grab larger and larger chunks of it. So in this initial version, he's only able to pirate 53 seconds. But what we know is that, yes, it comes from Malaysia, and we're seeing this woman who's being beaten in an unusual room, black and red. Um, Fun, unrelated little factoid. Uh, Peter Dvorsky was married to Rosemary Dunsmore, who was Dr. Mixter oh. on Chucky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a small world after it's all. A small, it's, it's a small Canadian world. It is. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I imagine a lot of these people work together, especially if you had a bit of a career. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, and so at this point in the film, we are not supposed to know that this is a snuff film. Like, Max mm-hmm. thinks that this is a just a really violent piece of work. He is confused that there's no plot, but he doesn't care. Right. He wants no. more of this. He just wants more. So he basically tells Harlan, get me more, and we'll see where we can go from there. Yes. But in the meantime, he is making waves for his harder approach to this. So he makes an appearance on the Rena King show. Rena King is played by Lally Cadeau, and he's there as part of a panel with radio personality Nikki Brand, who is played by Debbie Harry, as well as the TV manifestation of media prophet Professor Brian Oblivion, who is played by Jack Creeley. And they're there to talk about... uh, Basically media, but most specifically TV content. Another fun fact, our queer connection here, uh, Mr. Creeley is gay in real life, or was gay in real life when he was alive. Okay, interesting. But this scene, so yeah, th- this mm-hmm. is really where we're getting into like the thesis of the film, right? 100%. Like, this is the movie more or less putting everything on the table for the rest of the film, these are the debates we're going to have. And this is something that I, I, I'm i sure I found intriguing on a first watch, but then I forgot about it by the end because so much happens <laughs> between this and the end of the movie. Um, I am fascinated by this these discussions around sex and violence in the media. And are we, as a society, being desensitized? Is that bad for us? And, you know, mm-hmm. it goes into things like Scream, where it's like, oh, like, are, are uh, violent films inspiring serial killers and things like that? Like, that... Right is a fascinating conversation. What I actually think is cool is, I mean, we talk about, oh, as horror fans, like, you know, people are like, oh, you're freaks. Oh, like, why do you like to watch that kind of stuff? And in a way, like the, even I know we're not watching snuff films here, but the Mm -hmm. audience that is being targeted by Videodrome, you could argue a subset of that are horror fans. Oh, sure. Yeah. The people who would be most likely to be attracted to violence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what's also interesting is that you're actually only presenting one half of the argument. So you're making Nikki's argument right now. The idea that we live in oversaturated times, we're craving stimulation, we gorge ourselves on it, it's tactile, emotional, or Mm -hmm. sexual, and it's bad. So that's what Nikki says on this panel. But that's not what Professor Oblivion is saying at all. He's actually having a completely different conversation, which is not about content. It's actually about the medium. So the method by which the content is delivered. Right. 
And that is because, stepping away from the plot for a brief moment of Canadian history, folks. Mm -hmm. So Professor Oblivion is very clearly modeled on Marshall McLuhan. He is a Canadian philosopher. He's a cornerstone of media theory. He was hugely popular from the 1950s to the mid-70s. So basically right before this film was made. And he coined the expression, the medium is the message. It's in the first chapter of his book, Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man, published in 1975. Fun fact, I literally had to read this as my textbook in first year communication studies. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Yeah. So basically, the idea can be some, this is very much like point notes here. Okay. <laughs> um so the point is that the communication medium itself and not the message it carries is what should be the primary focus of studies. So if, for example, we take movies, we shouldn't be looking at what the narrative is or what the meaning of the film is. Mm -hmm. We should be looking at things like frame rate, editing, direction, mise-en-scene. So like how it's actually being delivered is more important than the actual movie and like the story. And all of that went over my head on a first watch of this film. Like I it's something where it's like it's so abstract that I was like, no, no, no. I, I need this concrete argument of like things that I'm familiar with that Nikki is talking about. That's what I'm latching on to. Totally <laughs> missing what Brian Oblivion is talking about, which of course is what the film will eventually start doing, right? Like we're, that's what Videodrome does. Well it does, but I would say the film, like Cronenberg's Videodrome, mm -hmm. is very much an interrogation of how the two ideas intersect. Because you're not wrong, this movie definitely wants to have conversations about what sensational media does to people and how it can pervert and corrupt and, yes, even like cause bodily changes in mm -hmm. us as a result. Yeah, and that, that it's that's your sci-fi coming in. Mm-hmm, yeah. So basically, this is like a philosophy of media literacy, right? Like, how do we process the things that we consume? And how does it actually have a change in us so that we become different people? So Oblivion is suggesting that by simply watching things on a screen, we become the screen and we are forever changed. Whereas Nikki, I think, is more affective. She wants to think about how do you gain sensation? How does it make you feel? How do you derive pleasure from this kind of stuff? Well, but that's kind of my thing, though, because it feels, at least in this interview, it seems like Nikki is coming down on this idea of like, no, we shouldn't be watching this stuff and we shouldn't get overstimulated because mm -hmm. otherwise we will lose sensation. Right. But then in the next scene, she's like, you know, a, a BDSM uh, mm -hmm. guru who loves to have pain <laughs> done to her. Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is that Nikki finds herself like she sees these expressions and these feelings in herself and she's concerned by it, but also she can't help but give into them because they feel good. It's what she actually wants. So she's a victim of this, but she's understanding of her victimhood. Uh, I I guess so. I think she doesn't want other people to go through things if they're not ready to accept who they are and what they really want. Like, to me, Nikki is very good at verbalizing or even expressing her personal desires, but I think she worries about what it does to society at large. Uh, I guess that makes sense, right? Because you know yourself, right? But mm -hmm. you don't know how it's going to affect other people. I mean, she knows, but like, she's like, I trust myself. I don't trust other people to have the same reactions to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like there's a scene in between. We'll come back to it in yes. a moment. But basically, Max goes to see Nikki at work. So she has a radio show called Emotional Rescue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Emotional Rescue Show. 
<laughs> I love it. But like, she's basically walking this girl. She's she's kind of like a an armchair psychologist. Yeah, yeah, she's helping this woman who's obviously in distress. But she's very nurturing. She's very caring. She's obviously very sympathetic. And I think that's part of how Nikki operates. But then in her personal life, like when we see her on the date with Max, and she wants to get her ears pierced, and she wants him to cut her neck, like she's very much in control of her own personal desires. She knows how to operate within her individual spectrum, but because she's exposed to all of these people calling in, she's like, not everybody can handle this shit. Well, okay, but at the same time, though, even on her show, like, she, she's doing a lot of, like, benign platitudes with this woman, just telling her, mm-hmm. you need help, you need help. But then before she's like, okay, but here, call her hotline, please. Right. So I'm like, well, what is she actually <laughs> doing on this show? <laughs> she's just a mediation. She's like the middleman between the actual therapist and the patient. I mean, that and she's making good entertaining art right like she's making something that people want to listen to but then she doesn't actually do the hard work she passes it off to other people so in a way she is the medium right like she's the way that people are consuming this but she's not actually about the content so she and max are one in the same now what i do really really liked about her date with max of course they just go to his house because sure why not Mm -hmm. but she's like you got a porno? Like, the, the way that the film approaches it. Nikki's sexuality is so... so frank. Well, it's so frank. It's, I feel like it's such a rarity for a woman, especially in film, to be like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, this woman watches porn. She wants to do kind of more outside-the-box things when it comes to sex. Her line, mm-hmm. you want to try a few things? I was like, yeah, girl, go! Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what's interesting is people have actually read this film as inherently misogynistic. Okay, God damn it! Well, <laughs> and in part because Nikki is such a kind of like idealized fantasy version of what men want in a woman, right? Mm-hmm. She's sexually forward. She's experimental. She pushes Max beyond his conventional sexual boundaries. So I think some particularly female viewers have looked at this and said like well this is just more fucking fantasy like this is a man's projection of what women should be i can see that however i think that disregards the fact though that women enjoy sex and yes (laughs) because uh, think of it this way too what if the roles were reversed then what if the what if the Max character was a female and then the Nikki character was male? I oh, think that's an inherently it would creepier. Not be yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> It'd be worse. So to me, this is like a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. I can totally see the arguments of both, but I think in mm-hmm. the year of our Lord twenty twenty three, Nikki Brand is a very sexually powerful woman. Yeah, and I would argue like we're really only seeing her as this person in this one scene. And Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, she's, she's controlling her sexuality. She's owning it. She's very forward. And I agree with you. I think especially nowadays we look at this and we're like, Oh, she's sex positive. She knows what she wants and she goes for it. That's amazing. I think people read the film as like what eventually happens to her. Like she's punished for her transgressive sexuality. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with those readings in part because this is kind of the last time we're going to see real Nikki and everything yeah. else is what James Wood's character is actually thinking of her. Well, that's the thing, right? Yeah, Cause she watches video drums. So we mm-hmm. like, I never thought about it. Cause like we do see her one more time when she says she's going to audition for video drum. Right. But you're right. Like at this point we know once you watch video drum, once the hallucinations will start. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and from what we know, I mean, unless you want to read, Basically, the moment that Max watches Videodrome on is a dream that he's hallucinating, which I also don't subscribe to because mm-hmm. I think it's boring. We know that Nikki goes on this trip to Pittsburgh and then she basically disappears. Yeah. So 
all the stuff that we're seeing in the back half of the film with her isn't Nikki. It's what other people are projecting onto Max or what Max is projecting onto himself. So, like, I don't read the stuff that happens after the fact as like, oh, she's being punished for her sexuality. Like, that's all about Max. It's not about Nikki anymore. Well, but, but I guess then if it's like, oh, yeah, she goes to follow her sexual dreams and gets killed. So, like, there is your punishment, I guess. But, mm-hmm. again, she's in control of her own life. Like, yes, right. and unfortunately, we're watching a genre film. Like, people make decisions and they die. And, yeah, <laughs> that's that. Well, and I would argue that sex... I think sex is always transgressive, particularly in a North American context where we're very uh, scared of it. Right. But I think even in the real world, like there is always a danger to sex. Like sex is about making yourself vulnerable. It's about doing things with people in private that you Mm -hmm. don't reveal to other folks. It's also about, you know, maybe going home with somebody or doing something in an unsafe place where you could be killed or you could be harmed. Like sex to me is, it's kind of the ultimate danger zone. And Hollywood has always capitalized on that. Well, and, and again, it's just like we're bringing sex out to the forefront. I actually said so one of these, Cronenberg's uh, the, the, not really on any of these um, features. He, he's in like uh, uh, archival footage. And right. there's a video of him in uh, 81 where he, he has this quote. He says, to the extent that my films and their imagery appeal to the unconscious, to that extent, my films are subversive of society because mm-hmm. society functions on the level of repression and order. And my films deal with what happens when repression and order break down. Yeah. Okay. So that is fantastic because when I was reading Beard's chapter on this film, he talks about this film as being all about the transgressive sexuality. So Mm -hmm. he says Nikki is this fantasy because Max gets to project his sexual desires onto and through her. But then the film is really about how unleashing repressed desire has uncontrollable, unintended consequences, including moral atrocity. So thinking about how it's like Max's pursuit of his sexual transgressiveness ends up hurting people like Bridie and Masha and to a lesser extent, Nikki. Well, and that's the thing too. I mean, like in a film that's all about sex and violence and sexual violence, mm-hmm. the, oh man, correct me if I'm wrong. The only rape in this film is that of Max. That we know that of. That we know yeah. of, yes. I mean, it depends on how you want to interpret what's happening on the TV when he's whipping it and it goes from Nikki to Masha. But mm-hmm. even that is more i'd say it's like a sexual assault as opposed to a rape yeah but whereas you actually have max being penetrated against yes. his will in this movie a hundred percent which is 98 percent of the reason why we're covering this yes <laughs> <laughs> oh my god just wait for those bloody commenters doesn't think queer about videodrome <laughs> oh my god uh, okay, so I do want to hop back to that scene that we sort of jumped over in mm-hmm. between the Nikki interactions. So this is where we find out that the signal is not actually coming from Malaysia. It's coming from Pittsburgh. And again, I just want to offer a little tiny bit of Canadian context. Mm. So we talked about how Canada has issues with regard to like, what is American content and what is quote unquote Canadian content, particularly at the time this film was made. So I, I like the fact that this is based in Cronenberg's real life history where he was watching kind of pirated television signals. Yeah. But it also very much plays on this Canadian inferiority complex. It's like part of a, like a national identity discourse because Canada often feels like we don't know exactly who we are because we're in the shadow of the U.S. and we just end up <laughs> absorbing all of your sort of culture 
including things like media, right? And arguably, mostly via media. Mm-hmm. So I love this idea that Cronenberg is implicitly making this condemnation that, of course, the sensational stuff, it's not actually coming from exotic Malaysia. It's coming from regular old fucking Pittsburgh just <laughs> across the border. And it's like, yeah, Americans with their, you know, oh, my God, their murder and their sex. It's polluting the Canadians. <laughs> well, and that's funny, right? Because, yeah, y'all get so much of our media, but like all your Canadian TV shows, like none of us over here knows what any of those things are. It's true. Or we hide them so that you think that they're just like showing up on like some random cable network. And it's like, oh, no, that's a Canadian show that people just bought. And you think it's yours. I, mean, I guess. I mean, I, I, I'm going back to being Erica. Because when mm-hmm. did we first talk about being Erica? I was like, no one here knows what being Erica is. <laughs> okay. And now I need everybody to correct you and be like, oh, I know what being Erica is. <laughs> They know about it because we talked about it before. <laughs> Fair. I'm I'm willing to, to gather that you've probably seen a Canadian TV show and you just didn't realize it. And I'm not talking about like, oh, Legends of Tomorrow or something like that. Like, no, yeah, 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 yeah. still yeah. an American show. Not, not a film that's shot in Canada, but like a distinctly Canadian produced television show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So we've mentioned Masha a couple of times, but we've not actually introduced her in this plot synopsis. She's played by Lynn Gorman, and she is a content producer that occasionally offers up content to max for civic tv so she's currently shopping a period piece that we briefly get to see called apollo and dionysus and this is another soft version yes. that max mm-hmm. is not really interested in yeah he's he, this is just it's like the a24 of snuff films <laughs> or the lifetime or hallmark version of it yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know what? It's the PBS version. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he basically politely says no to this, but he does ask her if she can track down whoever owns Videodrome and make an offer. So she becomes his medium in which to communicate with the people who make Videodrome. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, she comes back and she's like really cryptic. Like, no, it's a political movement. Stay away. Don't do it. Bye bye. <laughs> I mean, she does literally say it's snuff, like yeah. it's real. And he, I think, is only more attracted to it as a result. It's interesting to me that that second interaction of theirs, he actually says, well, I can give you something like we can fuck. So he literally offers sex in compensation for her brokering the deal. And then she, in a very sex positive, very female empowerment way, says, you're a little too old for me. And then she makes fuck eyes at the young waiter. (laughs) Good for you, Masha. (laughs) Get it, Masha. (laughs) So, yes, uh, then we we actually have Nikki's date where she mentioned she's thinking of auditioning for Videodrome when she goes on assignment to Pittsburgh. And Max tells her that she should stay away. And she responds by burning her breast with a cigarette. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but you're saying that some people maybe think at this point that this is already a hallucination. So some people say that. Uh, some people say that the hallucinations haven't really taken a stronghold. Like we haven't seen anything too weird yet. Right. So I think a lot of people still default assume, yeah, this is Nikki. She's still there. But after this point, anything that we see of Nikki. It'll all be on the TVs, and it's not really her anymore. So why do you think she burns herself in this moment, outside of just the pleasure she gets from it? Is there is it is it to, like, show Max, like, oh, I can take it? Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, 
it's important to remember that on that first date, when she says, you know, do you have any porno? And he says, well, I've got this thing, but it might be a little too hard for you. Mm -hmm. And she says, don't worry about me. I can take it. And then that's what we cut to them piercing her ears, right? Yes. So it's she's trying to show that she is game for anything. She's a down to fuck girl. She can take whatever he throws at her. And I think this is her saying, don't fucking tell me what to do. Like, I can handle anything you're seeing on Videodrome. Let me prove it. Cigarette to tit. <laughs> okay, yes. So then we get this meeting with Masha, and he's like, Meh, whatever. And when they leave that breakfast meeting, she does give him a name. So she says, you know what? Uh, you shouldn't touch this, but if you really want to pursue it, go after Brian Oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch, of course he's going to go after it. Mm-hmm. So this is when we get our introduction to the cathode ray mission, which is basically an amalgamation of the Salvation Army and a viewing station. Yes. So, OK, explain. You know, I'll try to explain this. So they mm -hmm. are putting homeless people through TV watching marathons in a way to integrate them back into society, because according to the Oblivions, TV is the future. Like, this is how we are going to live our lives. We will, none of us, mm -hmm. it's like the, it's like a Wally thing, but we're not getting fat. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're just going to keep watching things, and this is how we will get new experiences, live our lives. We're not actually going to go anywhere. We're just going to keep living through TV. And so they're bridging that gap with vagrants by just being like, cool, yeah, before we get to that level of the future, you will go back into society by just constantly watching TV to learn how to be, quote unquote, normal. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, if only because we're using like Max at one point comments on the fashion, aka the clothing of the people who are coming in here. So it looks like what you would expect the unhoused population of a large metropolitan city to look like, you know? Yeah. And yes, we we are introduced to Bianca Oblivion. That is Professor Oblivion's daughter. She's played by Sanja Smith. And she calls them derelicts, which is, like, uncomfortable. Yeah. But, yeah, the, this idea is that the reason that they are the way they are is because they've become unplugged from society because they're not watching video. And I think on one hand, this is really interesting because think of what happens to a kind of, like, cultural conversation right like we talk about how we've lost the water cooler because people don't always go into work or we don't have that kind of office culture how we don't all watch the same tv at the same time because of streaming and uh different time zones and that kind of stuff like mm -hmm. the binge model and what we've lost because people aren't plugged in in the same way and to me this is the 1983 version of that like if you're mm. on the streets and you're unhoused you're not able to plug into what everyone else is plugging into and therefore you're falling by the wayside societally Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Oh, I like that. And honestly, too, not too, because how much of our, maybe we're, we're in too much of a bubble, right? But how much of the world's lives right now is consumed by television? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you and I are obviously, like, here making a fucking living in it. Yeah. But <laughs> I think at the end of the day, like, people still look at media as it's like a frivolous thing. It's something that they do to relax. But if you think about it, it's also the way that we make up a lot of our beliefs. It starts discussions, you know, like whenever I go to a party, I'm like, fuck, I don't know how to socialize with people. I'm always like, Sylvia, watched a good movie or TV show lately? Well, I would even say the advent of the internet, right? Because like, mm -hmm. what are the things we talk about? Or at least I, I say we, I mean, I'm, I'm meaning mostly me, but like, it's like real world issues, 
mm-hmm. and television and movies. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and music. Yeah. And of course, the internet broaches or or meshes all of that together, right? It's mm-hmm. like a one-stop shop. It's the new medium in which we can all connect. I should also note that Marshall McLuhan, the guy that Professor Oblivion yeah. is based off of, he literally predicted the internet 30 years before it happened. Oh my god. Where is he right now? Um, He is unfortunately dead. Oh, well. Uh, but his legacy lives on. I should... One final fun fact about <laughs> yeah. Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> Just in case people are like, oh, it's a little bit on the nose that he's based on Marshall McLuhan. In real life, this guy actually had a brain tumor. It was benign, but he did have it. So Cronenberg literally was like, I'm taking not just your central thesis, but (laughs) But also your real life medical condition. Oh, my God. Okay. well, you know what? That's fine. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's uh, real life is inspiring the movies. Mm. (laughs) So anyway, Max is like, hey, I need to talk to your dad because I'm interested in this video drum thing. And Bianca, who we should note, gives off a sexual repression vibe. Like she's got the hair in the tight bun and she's wearing more severe clothing. Yeah, she's very much the antithesis of Nikki. And uh, she basically is like, no, you can't see my dad. He only converses in monologue, (laughs) not discourse. So his medium is one way only. Okay, kind of, though. He was kind of, I mean, he did do a monologue on that TV show, but he was still replying to a question. Well, sure. But when you find out the truth about how he operates, he was never engaging in a discourse. He was only ever putting out his opinion because he can't receive anything. He's fucking dead. Yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) he's dead he's dead he's been (laughs) dead for 11 months (laughs) could you imagine three times watching this i didn't know that (laughs) i mean there's a lot of things where if you're not paying attention they don't repeat it so i remember the first time i watched this i could not figure out the relationship between barry convex and the oblivions i was like who why why do they not like each other Dumbass. It's probably because you're, t- you're so focused on Harlan being like the traitor. Sure. Yeah. yeah. We'll say that. It's actually kind of ironic that you mentioned Verhoeven because this does remind me of Total Recall in a couple of different ways. Oh, yeah. Like mm-hmm. the idea of like multiple personalities and how you can be weaponized using technology. Like we haven't really acknowledged this, but this movie also is engaging with like technophobia. The idea that if you oh, engage yeah. with new media, you can be corrupted or polluted and you become a different person. Well, that, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and this is like during the VHS versus Betamax time period. Mm-hmm. And that's why they use VHS tapes to put in inside Max because the Betamax tapes were too big. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, so Max couldn't take it is what he you're could saying. not. It, the, the Betamax is like the fisting version of the <laughs> video. I mean, let's be honest. He's fully getting fisted. He does movie. get fisted. Yes. <laughs> this is some kink shit right here, buddy. <laughs> but no, yeah, the, I, I feel like it, it would be interesting to see. Oh, my God. If you took a Cronenberg script, like, like video drama, mm-hmm. and gave it to Verhoeven, but then did, then did the opposite and gave a Verhoeven script to Cronenberg oh. to direct. I would love to see how they did, how did they do that. I would love to see it. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, I think it would just have a very different vibe. Oh, yeah. I mean, like there would be a bit more, I think, more comedic satire in Videodrome, which I don't know how you would do that. But for mm. Verhoeven would find a way. Yeah, I mean, I think things like the violence, like the explosion of uh, Harlan, I think could actually be either a Verhoeven or Cronenberg Mm -hmm. trait. Very much so. 
Okay. So Max, after not really getting very far with the Oblivions, Oblivions, he really is only interacting with Bianca. Yeah. He goes home. He replays these conversations that he's had recently about Videodrome with Harlan, Masha, and Nikki. And then uh, I can't remember where or when he got the gun, but basically he's got this gun, which immediately is red flag central. You're just like, oh, Max, no, Mm -hmm. you should not have a gun of all people. Not you. Yeah. Uh, Once again, in case people have forgotten, Canadians don't often have guns either. So it is a bit of a big thing that he has access to one because like not everybody has a gun. Now I'm going to need all my Canadians out there that have guns to come up and prove Joe wrong and say, look (laughs) at my gun. Okay, Um, let's put it this way. If you have like handguns and you're not going to the gun range... (laughs) Like, we don't often have guns for personal safety. I, I actually, I truly don't know the percentage of Americans that have guns, but I will say mm-hmm. that growing, I mean, I grew up in Texas, right? But I mean, granted, right. it was like city Texas. It wasn't like middle right. of West Texas. But like, I I didn't own a gun growing up. My parents didn't have a gun. I don't, I didn't know anyone that had a gun growing up. But again, mm-hmm. like, I'm one fraction of a of a percentage in the United States. I, I would love to know the percentage of Americans. That, I'm, sure, I'm sure I can Google that. Right. I mean, what's interesting is growing up Canadian and consuming a lot of American media, the default assumption is that you all, all, all own guns. guns. Um, I'm just legitimately curious. I'm just like, I'm just Googling this. Uh, okay. Okay. 32% of US adults say that they personally own a gun with a larger hmm. percentage, 44% report living in a gun household, which I'm assuming that means you're pro gun, not that you actually have a gun. Mm. I don't know. Or maybe at one point you did and maybe you don't now. Maybe so. Oh, wait. Gun households include respondents saying they have a gun in their home combined with those who have a gun elsewhere on their property. Oh, okay. So, like, it could be in the car. It could be in the garage. Yeah, in your farm in right. West Texas. <laughs> I mean, that, that's it's not a, it's a good amount. significant number. Yeah. That's, you know, more than one in four. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and probably significantly more than you Canadians. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but but I love that. Like you, because again, we have we have so many guns in our media <laughs> that the, the belief is that yes, all Americans have guns. <laughs> Literally, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he he hides the gun when Bridie drops off a tape, and she's not dropping off the wake up message. She also has a hand delivery from Professor Oblivion. So interesting. This is where the hallucinations start. So <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> The first time you're watching this, it is shocking because he just starts smacking this assistant around. But when he hits her, she turns into Nikki. And when he hits her again, she turns back into Bridie. And it is a moment. Oh, yeah. And it's honestly like you if you blink, you will miss her turning into Nikki because it's mm-hmm. a single shot. And then we cut back to him and then boom, it's Bridie again. Right. On my rewatch of this, I forgot this happened, obviously. And I, I was so like... Oh my god, she really doesn't care that she just got the shit right? like slapped out of her. And then luckily, then you realize, oh, she because he hallucinated it. But it's very yeah. jarring at first to be like, oh my god, he just slapped the fuck out of his coworker for trying mm-hmm. to eject a tape. Right. And again, if we're using Professor Oblivion slash Marshall McLuhan's theorizing, this is Cronenberg using the medium to fuck with us. So in terms of the narrative, like, okay, so it's a hallucination. We understand that Max is starting to slowly lose his mind. But in terms of the way it's constructed filmically, like in film language, yeah. there's no marker that Cronenberg gives us to be like, hey, you just saw a hallucination. 
Well, that's the thing, right? Yeah, we're breaking the standard communication methods of film mm-hmm. because, yeah, normally there would be a signifier. It'd be like, oh, yeah, this is fake. This is all in his head. This film, does mm-hmm. everything is presented as is, which is not normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, I could see why that would maybe turn people off because it's they're not picking up on that. I didn't pick up on that. Right. Yeah. Like, I think you very quickly start to realize, okay, from this point on, the film is going to shift. But also, if I'm not aware of these subtle cues, or if I'm not paying close enough attention, I'm going to start missing things. And that's why everyone, if like me, you saw this once and were immediately put off by it, it is a film that rewards multiple rewatches. Mm -hmm. If I mean, again, like, it's not a very pleasant film to watch. (laughs) You don't say (laughs) just just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Bridie is like what's wrong with you nothing happened and he's shocked and appalled and then he realizes okay i guess nothing did so she leaves and he takes out the tape and the tape begins to move in his hand move in his hand the tape is breathing the tape comes alive then the tv starts doing it (laughs) yeah so he starts to watch this and oblivion's doing more of his kind of shtick right so Mm -hmm. he's talking about how video and reality are one and the same the television screen is part of the mind's retina which means that it actually is a physical structure of the brain so like when you're watching something it's literally a part of your brain and therefore whatever you're seeing is actually more real than reality itself. So what we watch on a screen is realer than our real life experiences. And again, that's kind of the treaties of the film. Like you can't always trust the things that you're seeing because sometimes the things on the screen are more real than your real life. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And wow. (laughs) Yes. And oh God, no. Yeah. I, uh, it's, it's like that thing. I think I've talked to this before. Where it's like you know when you think, like, why is your favorite color green? Like my favorite color is like, why do you? When you think about it, like, why is it? I, mean, I can't. Why? I you can't, can't vocalize why it's mm-hmm. green, but I can feel why I like the color green. And so that that's the same feeling I have after listening to what you just said. <laughs> Fair enough. So we we continue to watch this speech, and um, basically, Oblivion lays out some of these physical symptoms so you're affected by what you're watching on the screen in the case of videodrome that actually causes tumors and when the tumors are removed that mass is what videodrome is yes that okay and again what a weird fucking because again it's like oh you're taking this physical thing Mm -hmm. and turning it into a visual medium somehow that's where this like sci-fi technology is coming in where it's like oh yeah the film is like we get the helmet later Mm -hmm. but it's still like you're like what the fuck is going on (laughs) But if you think about it, too, like, again, just to really fucking lay into Mm -hmm. this, the medium is the message. What is film, right? It's a strip of celluloid that we play through light and it creates meaning. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like when you start to peel it back, you really realize, oh, we so often prioritize the content and not the form. And in this case, you know, we would never think, oh, a tumor is part of like an enlightening sadomasochistic visual medium. But really, there's sort of like a hop, a skip and a jump between some of the things the film is saying and what we actually experience in real life. Yeah, it's not as far fetched as reality. Uh, It's not so far fetched to be that far from reality. Right. Yeah. 
So uh, this is important to note because, of course, this is when Oblivion literally gets killed on screen by someone who is revealed to be Nikki. Mm -hmm. And she, as you alluded to, begins to ask Max to come to her and she starts moaning. And that's because the TV is turning into a giant pair of lips. Yes. And then it just undulates. The breathing sound, mm-hmm. the foley work on the breathing in this movie it's is really good. It's very disturbing. And yeah, and mm-hmm. then he just starts making out with the TV screen. Yes, yes, he does. So one of the special features on the Criterion disc is Baker talking about, you know, read the script, thought it was visionary, was really excited to work on it, and then realized, holy fuck, how are we actually going to do this? Folks, the special effects haven't age spectacularly well like you can very clearly tell the prosthetics but in 1983 these were fucking revolutionary so like the tv the gun all of that kind of stuff was groundbreaking and i loved uh reading the wikipedia entry that clarified that when max is like pushing his head into the tv lips that was apparently made using dental dams oh my god (laughs) Wait, okay, I, I I did see this. I was a little confused, though. I thought, like, I guess they just got, like, a big sheet of the material. I Tr- think so, Joe, yeah. Truthfully, I actually, I mean, I know a dental dam is something to help you, like, from getting cum in, like, from swallowing cum, but I don't know the, the <laughs> mechanics of a dental dam. Like, what... I mean, it's not just about preventing comment. It's it's so that you don't get a, an STI. Right. It, it's basically a protective barrier so that you can still feel things, but you're not coming into direct contact with things like fluids. I was always really confused. I, the same with um, like a diaphragm. Um, I was mm-hmm. always really confused how it worked, but I'm also not a woman, so I don't... Yeah, I mean, I think people traditionally associate a dental dam more with like female kind of lingus, like... You could use it if you were giving a blowjob, but I I don't know exactly how that would work. So diaphragms, fucking mystery. They're like a magic cup. I don't understand. Wait, dental dams are meant just for the vagina, not for the mouth? No, it is for the mouth. No, it is for the mouth. Right? No, it, oh it's for any mouth stuff where you don't want to make direct contact with, with bodily skin fluids, or yeah. 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 Oh my god! That <laughs> we sound like the biggest fucking idiot. I know. I'm Folks, sure. I'm sure someone's like, y'all do uh... do some research. <laughs> yeah. You know what? We're not here to educate you about sex. We just talk and make glib remarks about it. Okay. In case y'all couldn't tell, I've never used a dental dam in my life. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, yeah. Here's the thing: you could use it for blowjobs if you wanted to. Maybe you could use it for rimming. It's just hmm. an unpopular choice because. You know, it's like the condom debate. People are like, oh, it changes the way it feels, blah, 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 blah. Well, it's like you, you place the dam between your mouth and your partner's vagina or anus. I'm like, okay, cool. Right. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, well, then you just have this thing in your mouth the whole time. So that just doesn't seem very comfortable. But you know what? I guess I guess it's 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 a small price to play to pay for no STIs. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I liked your Freudian slip. It's a small price to play. To play. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so Max sticks his whole fucking head into the TV. And if we go back to Beard, he says there's multiple kind of contradictory readings, which makes this scene so evocative and memorable. Because in some ways, it's Max giving head to Nikki. Yeah. It's her lips. And then there's also the kind of visual connotation of like a penis going into a vagina. Mm -hmm. But there's also symbolically this idea of like, going into like a vaginal cavity you're going back into the womb so he's like starting to be reborn oh yeah 
Yeah. Because <laughs> this whole thing is all about like how Max is transforming and he's yeah moving into something, but also he's going to be reborn into this new flesh. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is all very exciting. And then we go back to the cathode ray mission because he's returning the tape, but mostly he wants to talk to Oblivion because he's like, what the fuck happened to me last night? <laughs> So Bianca diagnoses his headaches as a result of that first viewing of Videodrome. So from the very first watch, it's basically the crystal meth of video. You get one taste and you're fucked for life. Yeah. This is when we find out that Professor Oblivion is actually dead. He lives only on video. We also learn that he is the originator. He created Videodrome, but he never meant for it to be weaponized. Somebody else did that and then they killed him. But he was kind of fine with it because he's not afraid of death because living life on TV is actually more real than living life in the flesh. But then that's also like, so are we to believe that the, his consciousness is alive in his tapes or is that just like, mm -hmm. no, he's like, no, like by, by being on film, I am immortal. I'm not yes. conscious for it, but I, by my memory, I, I'm always going to be around because of this. Yeah, I definitely read it more as the latter. I don't think there's a kind of supernatural piece to this. Yeah. No, so, okay, so he wasn't going to weaponize Videodrome. So what was his plan for Videodrome? I think he wanted to use it to enlighten people. Like, he thought, he obviously didn't love the tumors, like, killing people, like, giving people <laughs> cancer. But I think he regarded this as the next stage of human evolution. So people being physically altered by the Videodrome signal wasn't a bad thing because it actually expanded their minds. It opened up new levels of consciousness. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's, it, this is all very heavy. It's very heavy. And it's like, this is the scene where you get that and then we move on to something else. So it's like, cool, sit with that. Oh, wait, we can't. The movie's already moved on. The credits are coming at the 88 minute mark. Y'all, we got to go. <laughs> <laughs> we have got to push forward. <laughs> Okay, so after hearing, shit, I'm fucked, I'm hallucinating like at least 50% of the time, according to the Oblivions, Max talks to Harlan because Harlan has also watched Videodrome, so he wants to know if he's hallucinating. Harlan says no. <laughs> light bulb, Max, light bulb. Right. Thanks. Hmm, interesting. He ends up going home, and Bianca gave him a bunch of Oblivion tapes, basically so he could study up and get a better sense of what the guy's deal was. And as he's sitting there watching these tapes shirtless, we see that he's scratching what appears to be a very angry red mark down the center of his gut. Yep. And yep. it's not subtle at all. It looks like mm -mm. actually this looks more comfortable to me than the actual slit once it opens up. Y yeah, this looks angry. Like you should go to the doctor and get that looked at. Well, he keeps scratching it with the barrel of the gun. Yeah, I mean, relatable content, because who hasn't had something where you're just like, I know I shouldn't do this, but I can't stop itching it. Skin stuff, man. That's the thing. That's the thing about all body horror. Like, it's always skin stuff. Well, obviously body. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's no. just so that that's so fucking relatable, right? Like, how many times have you had like a random red spot or whatever pop up on your body or something that itch and you're like, God damn it, that shouldn't be there. That shouldn't mm -hmm. be there. Yeah. Also, to clarify, because I realized what I said earlier sounded like I had STIs that I couldn't stop. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I was talking about things like mosquito bites. I had athlete's foot once, and that was very itchy. <laughs> oh, my God. Athlete's foot. Oh, oh, oh. Um, I got poison oak on oh my dick. Oh, no. 
that's mm-hmm. rough yeah but you know how i got it though it was because i touched it on my hands went mm-hmm. pee and i didn't wash my hands between touching the poison oak because i didn't know what it was i didn't know why i had touched it oh. and so i got it on my fingertips and on my dick because i didn't wash my hands <sighs> how did i know you would end up with something on your dick in this episode it was during hurricane rita too so we were like evacuating texas um because it was like right after hurricane katrina and i was <laughs> literally in like standstill traffic for hours oh no with a a penis that was inflated maybe three times its size with poison. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is shocking. <laughs> I mean, in some regards, you're like, hey, my dick's bigger. Oh, my God. <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God, it's so fucking itchy. <laughs> no. Please help me. <laughs> it was like the kind of itchy where it itches so bad that it actually hurts. Oh, no. Anyway. No, that's um, no fun anymore. So, mm-hmm. yes, everyone, Joe does not have STIs. <laughs> he just gets normal things like mosquito bites. <laughs> just for the record to anyone who's listening. <laughs> Clean My line is open. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, basically, the term I kept seeing in articles is that Max has been invaginated because, yeah, this wound opens up into a vulva, and I just love that his first is to stick his hand in it. <laughs> literally you're, you're just like dude you're such a fucking man, man. like oh got something hey i'm just gonna stick something into it yeah so he sticks the hand with the gun with in the it, gun and then he loses the gun uh, help, keep that in your back pocket for later mm-hmm. yeah so the the other reason that i think this movie is so interesting to again take a step back from it is the misogyny stuff I find, again, a little bit less interesting, if only because I think the film is making some really interesting commentary about this sort of transgressive sexuality where Max will spend the rest of the film being treated as a woman would. So he he literally gets like female anatomy in his chest, and then he is raped and manipulated and abused by all of the men in his life for the rest of the film yeah and i is is that a reading that you found i mean i obviously i know you're giving this reading now but like has much been written about that perspective of the film so i found it in beard's Mm -hmm. uh piece on the film so he definitely you know reads this as a kind of like punishment or retribution for transgressive masculinity right where max becomes the abject female monster or the hysterical female victim like he basically just gets played for the rest of the movie i also want to say i found an interesting trans reading so that's the mcclay piece which is a conversation between two trans media critics And they recognize what goes on with Max and more specifically across Cronenberg's oeuvre. They see this as body dysmorphia. In what way? So basically this idea that like your body doesn't feel right. It's like you're you're living in a body that is changing and becoming different. You have a different sense of yourself and your gender. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, he's becoming the new flesh. Essentially, he's becoming the new flesh. But um, <laughs> So here's what McClay says. I recall Cronenberg saying that he believes everyone has control with varying degrees of complete grip over their identities. This makes sense to me. He is not really casting a judgmental eye, but showing people going through self-discovery that it can sometimes be trial and error, wear and tear, and can doom them. 
but this is more Cronenberg presenting human fallibility than damnation. And his stories make sense as far as seeing these bodies in disarray and these choices being made because Cronenberg's worlds make sense. The images are surreal, subversive, but the characters are very real, sometimes even operating in very traditional film archetypes. But of course, there is a level of transgressiveness in his work that makes his films challenging for people. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with all that. Yeah. Okay, so he's lost the gun in the vag. In himself. <laughs> yep. And this is when he then gets a call that this person, Barry Convex, would like to meet him. So he hops in a, a chartered car and he gets a video introduction literally in the car as he's en route to this meeting. So Barry Convex, played by Leslie Carlson, he works for a company called Spectacular Optical. I fucking love the names in this. <laughs> um, Beard actually has a rundown about how they're all sort of commentary on like various facets of their identities. Hmm. So of course, Barry Convex, like Convex is a form of uh, lens. Yes. And Spectacular Optical is <laughs> it's a company uh, that makes inexpensive glasses for say, the it's, third it's, world. <laughs> I mean, it sounds exactly like what it is. It sounds like a glasses store. <laughs> yes, but they also make missile guidance systems for NATO, and they're also the co-creators of Videodrome. As you do. As you do. I love that Max pulls up at this brick-and-mortar store. He tries on a couple of glasses. In case you didn't agree with my Max becomes sort of like feminized by people, mm. uh, Barry Convex literally talks about how he should pick a different set of glasses for his delicate face. <laughs> See, now I want to watch it a fourth time to, to pick up on all these cues. Mm-hmm. So he ends up saying, hey, Max, we know that you're suffering from hallucinations. We've got this fancy VR headset that we would love to record what you're seeing so that we can do some analysis of this. And he also clarifies that sex and violence is what opens the receptors in the brain and spine to allow Videodrome in. So really, it's all about that nasty, nasty shit that is going to work its way into your system. But at the same time, he's saying like, oh, the reason we want to do this, though, is because everyone that watches Videodrome gets a tumor and dies. You mm -hmm. seem to be doing OK. <laughs> so we want to study you to see how to mm -hmm. fix this. Yeah, of course, this is the company line, because at this oh, point, yeah. we don't know that Convex is a quote unquote villain. Mm -hmm. So he seems like, OK, well, Oblivion isn't really giving me the answers I want, but here's somebody who's saying, we're doing studies, we might be able to help you. Right, exactly. But it's all a big lie. It's all a big lie. Yeah. So we put this helmet on, and I love the convex. It just goes, I can't cope with this freaky shit, and leaves. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, apparently, this is Cronenberg standing in for Woods under the helmet because Woods was afraid he would get electrocuted. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess fair. We don't really know what Shoot. technology was like in those days. I know. He's probably like, he took one look at it and was like, no, no. I, I will say, though, I love watching movies basically from the 80s and 90s when we're doing VR shit because you can tell that everyone always thinks that they're going to be the future. <laughs> and in a way, I guess they kind of are, right? I mean, we, we've got more VR stuff coming on the market now, but it never takes off in the way that I feel like film always thought it would yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> okay so nikki comes in and we see that they are now in the red video drone room 
And she says, hey, Max, like, why don't you whip me? Like, we can kind of pick this up where we left off. So he starts whipping her, but she is now on the TV in the room that he's whipping. And then we see he's not actually whipping her. It's actually Masha. This, uh, it's, it's like um when you have two mirrors facing each other and, you know, you can see, like, infinitely down the mirrors. Mm-hmm. That's what this is like, where it's like, oh, like, you're watching someone be filmed on a TV, but it's actually not that. It's, it's. It's like that. Mm-hmm. For me. It's oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's really upsetting because Max isn't paying attention to what's going on. Like he's hearing Nikki's moaning and and come ons, and when that moves into violence against Masha, he's not paying attention because he's not in tune with it. Right. And of course, then it's like, oh, did he actually kill her? Because when he wakes up in bed, her body is next to him. Yeah. And this is like, this is kind of like horror tropey stuff. And this is like yes. when you're like, okay, well, what's going on here? Like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> yeah. I think at this point, if this is your first time watch, you're really uncertain. Okay. So did he kill Macha? Like, is it possible that he did it without meaning to and like the video drum stuff isn't real, but he actually did kill this woman when she came to see him or whatever. So it's still very much a OK, so Max is maybe losing it. Maybe he's a murderer now. I mean, I think the implication here of though was, of course, like he like was, I don't know, like passed out after his helmet trip and then sure. they killed Masha and then put him put her in bed with him to fuck with him. Right. If if you believe that she's even dead at all. Right. Because she disappears shortly after. <laughs> we will never see her again. Yeah. <laughs> so he calls in Harlan to come and take pictures, to which I'm like, Max, I mean, are you trying to document to protect yourself? What did you hope to gain from this move? Mm-hmm. But the body is gone. So uh, Max promises to tell Harlan, you know what, meet me at work in an hour. I'll explain everything. But when he shows up, it's revealed that Harlan is actually working with very convex of spectacular optical yeah this is a two year long con by harlan (laughs) i was okay no because he's like why 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 two years and he's like oh well Mm -hmm. to get you to video drum and i was like okay but literally one day you Mm -hmm. were just like oh look at this thing i found why didn't you do that in the first month I mean, I guess he had to get him to trust him. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's inconsequential, honestly. I was bit. just like, when he gave this monologue, I was like, really, dude? Like, what What? What needed to wait two years? It is just wild that they have had this plan in motion for this long. I mean, even when you think about, okay, Professor Oblivion died 11 months ago. So they've been biding their time. They've been, I think, looking for the right max. Like, when Barry Convex said, you know, we've seen a bunch of other people die when they watch Videodrome, I actually kind of believe him that they have tried to do this multiple times, and they've never been able to weaponize someone until Max. Uh, yeah, I guess that's the case. So maybe it was like, do you think maybe Max was always their target? And so they kept using all these guinea pigs until they got mm. it to where they, they thought maybe Max is ready for it? entirely possible like maybe they were just studying him waiting to see if he was going to match up with what they actually needed yeah but everyone all right so the motive the killer motive in this movie is harlan's Mm -hmm. little monologue he says north america is getting soft patron and the rest Mm -hmm. of the world is getting tough very very tough soft versus tough soft versus tough we're entering savage new times and we're going to have to be pure and direct and strong if we're going to survive them. Now, you and this cesspool you call a television station <laughs> and your people who wallow around in it and your viewers who watch you do it, you're rotting us away from the inside and we intend to stop that rot. So this is basically mm-hmm. a terrorist organization. 
Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because it does end up sort of speaking to what Nikki talked about when they went on the TV show, right? This idea that we have become this sensationalized society who is only interested in things that just make us a cesspool of rot. But it's also like, I mean, I know this movie is not about censorship, but it's Mm -hmm. tying into this because it's like, these people that are that are deeming on their own what is right and wrong, good and bad to watch, and they're saying, mm-hmm. fine, we're going to bait the people that want to watch the bad stuff, show them the bad stuff that will actually kill them, and right. leave only the innocent people and the quote-unquote good media left behind. Yeah, and I mean, if you think about Cronenberg's journey as a filmmaker in Canada, where he was basically put on public trial for making Shivers back in Mm -hmm. 1975, I've talked about this a couple times, but the validity of that film as being funded by taxpayer dollars was debated in Parliament, like the equivalent of the White House or like Senate. Of Canada. (laughs) Um, Oh my God, shows how little I know about the US, but. It's fine. I think it's an interesting piece of commentary by Cronenberg saying like, well, who gets to decide what is reputable art? Like, we may not agree with Max because he's sleazy and slimy and he doesn't seem to care for women or treat them very well. But who gets to decide whether or not the stuff that he's putting out at Civic TV is worthwhile? Like, why does Harlan get to decide it's shit and I'm going to use you to get rid of all the people who would watch it. Well, and it's so funny and you're going to laugh because I've mentioned this movie a lot and we'll never be able to cover it because it's not a genre film, but the Mm -hmm. film I kept thinking about and the filmmaker I kept thinking about in conjunction with this movie Mm -hmm. was John Waters and Cecil B. Demented. Baby, we are going to cover Cecil B. Demented. Because Cecil B. Demented is very much about like, it's yeah, about like, oh, we are fighting the Hollywood studio system where we're fighting censorship for really fucked up things. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I fucking love that movie. Oh, it was so good. But yeah, so the whole time I was like, oh my God, like Cecil B. Demented is John Waters' video drone. <laughs> How dare you, but maybe. <laughs> double feature that. Someone book a double feature of that at a theater. Please do that. <laughs> there we go. Let us know how it plays. Which one would you start with? <laughs> oh, God. Um, it's got to be sh- It's got to be this. and then Yeah, I think you start with video drone. <laughs> yeah. Go heavy and then go light. Er. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that is the master plan. Um, this is where we get the the rape scene. So Convex literally forces a pulsing tape into Max's abdomen. And we hear in Max's head Convex saying, okay, now you're going to go. You're going to kill your partners. So he pulls out the gun. It's now gooey. It ends up attaching itself to his arm. Oh, yeah. Great yeah, stuff. Yeah. This is neat. And it should be noted that just to make sure that we're always confused about what is real and what is not, at various points when you see this flesh gun, sometimes it looks like this gooey appendage that is literally attached to him, and other times it's just Max holding a gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And you have to catch it every time because it's just like, what is real at this point? Mm Mm-hmm. Should also note that uh, Videodrome is very clearly a precursor to Cronenberg's later film Existence, which is my second favorite David Cronenberg film, also features a flesh gun, which also features people being turned into assassins, which also features hallucinatory imagery, and also the idea of men being penetrated. I find it fascinating that your two favorite Cronenberg films are his 90s films from like the same time period. Yeah, I can't help but wonder if it's a nostalgia thing because those Maybe. are like some of the first films that I actually watched of his, but I just feel like they really embody a lot of his earlier work, but they're doing 
new interesting things at the same time yeah the 90s were an interesting time right like the the horror genre was in a weird place but yeah Mm -hmm. if you look specifically at cronenberg's filmography it's like oh yeah like i doing exactly what you just said well he's also very much a man in transition in the Mm -hmm. 90s like i think he's trying to figure out do i still want to do this body horror stuff or am i more interested in making like beautiful period pieces and more conventional hollywood fare like yeah, like his yeah. 90s work I find is very experimental. Yeah, I think the like one of his least known films is M. Butterfly, and that's what mm-hmm. I've always been curious to see. Oh, yeah, and that's the one that's actually been turned into multiple mediums because there's actually a ballet of that one. But, okay, wait, I thought it was, I thought M. Butterfly was based on an opera, though. It is. Okay, okay, so I, <laughs> I was like, oh my god, wait, did the Cronenberg film come first? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Um, okay, so he does proceed to murder his partners, and then he ends up fleeing the scene. Um, okay, wait, but I think this is really scary, because... Oh, it's terrifying. When his boss, like, he's like, well, I can't, he can't go anywhere, he just gets on the ground and just looks away. Like, it is, mm-hmm. and even when he kills Convex in a minute, like, Con- <laughs> then we get this wide shot of Convex, like, just running mm-hmm. from side to side on the stage trying to avoid this gun. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of a couple of different films, like particularly when you see people turned into assassins, often on a kind of like public stage. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting how we shoot these kinds of things. Like it often gets more wild in terms of the movement of the camera. Like it's a lot more herky jerky kind of in your face. And we often tend to focus on people cowering and being incredibly scared. And it's just really. I don't know. It feels a lot more real to me. Yeah, 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 it does. Because like watching the gun meld into his hand, you're like, oh, my God, these special effects are amazing. That looks right. really weird and gross. Like the gun is dripping ooze and shit. And then all of a sudden you're watching this man just go to work and shoot people. And you're like, oh, that's real life stuff. That's tying back into, again, like the way the film is presented is as if it was the real world, right? We don't have flying right. cars. There's no like future mm-hmm. tech outside of just the fact that it's like... It's the technology we have already at our disposal that just can mm-hmm. do things that it's not able to actually do in our in our real world. Yeah, or like unconventional. Like you could have a TV VCR in a car. Like yeah. I mean, technically we do them all the time now with things like SUVs for parents who want to entertain their kids on long car trips. Oh, I totally had a TV in my car, in my, in my van. But it was, it, was like, it was like a mini block TV in, in between right. the seats. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas this is kind of like, oh, it, it does feel futuristic, but it's not futuristic tech. It's just like, we weren't doing that, were we? Well, no, and that's that's what I'm saying. I think that's why it's jarring, at least specifically mm-hmm. for me, why I was maybe not confused, but I was just like, wait, what's going? Well, I guess yeah, I was confused because like, what this is this <laughs> what's is going on? This is a TV. Like, what is it? Like, what what what, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, and then you get these moments, which are incredibly realistic and yes. very just sort of like grounded and confronting. Mm-hmm. Let's say, I mean, like again, not to get into labels, but like, would you call this a horror film? Oh, I would. Absolutely. The body horror alone for me is very upsetting. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, so he has killed his partners. He's on the run, but he still has more mission directives to complete. So he goes to the cathode raid mission to kill Bianca, except this bitch is totally ready for him. <laughs> she kn- well, because she thought from the get-go that he was already an assassin. So she mm-hmm. knew the capabilities of Videodrome when he walked yes. in the first time. 
Yeah, which is wild that she even let him get as far as he did. But I think part of this is that she too was waiting to see what he was capable of. So when he shows up and he's got that gun, she knows it's go time. But yeah. she, yeah, she's ready for him. So she calls him out as an assassin for spectacular optical. She shows him a tape where Nikki is actually murdered. So this is the kind of confirmation that Nikki did go to Pittsburgh and then she was purportedly killed on set. And that's the bummer, right? You're like, oh, wow, Debbie Harry's only in the first like mm-hmm. 15 minutes of this movie. Really? Really? Yeah. I mean, she'll continue to pop up. But again, it's, it's like, not her. It's not her in the same way that, well, I mean, yeah. if we were Professor Oblivion, we would say, no, that's still her because she's still alive on video and she's more real there than she ever was in real life. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. She Long live the new Flash, bitch. I mean, I would argue that this is not Nikki because the Nikki that we know didn't act this way, right? Like this Nikki does feel like a fantasy. She feels like someone else's version of who Nikki actually was. Okay, well, maybe hold it's on. Max's. But... Then hold on to that because I want to talk about the Nikki that we see in the final scene of the film. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Okay, so this is all a distraction and a giant arm hand reaches out of this tv where we have just seen nikki get killed and (laughs) shoots max but then when we when we see the follow-up the tv is exactly the same as it always was but basically this has discontinued his programming and bianca has been able to remove the cassette that barry convex put in him yeah she's like it's uh, the, the the removal process is always quite painful so it's like he saw himself getting shot by the tv giant tv screen hand but Mm -hmm. what she did was something else Yeah, so we don't actually really know what she did to deprogram him, but basically she has changed the program. So she is changing the message, she has changed the medium, and she's got a new tape for him. (laughs) So she basically just turns him into an assassin for her. I love (laughs) this switch. Because you think, okay, Bianca is going to be either wise because she's so controlled and sexually repressed, She's a daddy's girl, or she's going to be this woman that Max inadvertently kills under programming by Barry Convex. Mm. No, bitch. She's kind of exactly the same as Barry Convex because she just uses Max and points him back at Spectacular Optical to yeah, do her bidding. But it's self-preservation, though, because he, oh, sure. she, like, I, I don't think she's out going out there like she's not uh, making plans to kill Convex. She's mm. reacting to his assassination attempt. Uh, so I would agree with that partially, mm-hmm. because if you look at the mantra that she has him repeat numerous times, death to Videodrome. Okay, mm-hmm. so she's she's saying we're going to put an end to how Videodrome is being used. Absolutely. But then she says, long live the new flesh. Uh... That to me is she has ambitions for how to proceed with this. It's in line with what her father wanted. Right. But like she has her own goals. Right. Yeah. yeah. So she's still the mad scientist, just not as mm-hmm. evil as Convex is because she's not trying to weaponize it. She's trying. But exactly. But you could argue that I mean, again, whatever this long live the new flesh, which seems to be, you know, kill yourself and live forever in yes. video Transform, form, become somebody different. Like it still requires physical sacrifice and bloodshed. Exactly. And so then it's a matter of, well, is she going to make people do this against their will because mm-hmm. it's her vision of the future or her 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 father's vision of the future? Right. And hypothetically, how would she get that out? Would she still be using Civic TV Channel 83? Would she still be targeting the people who were watching Videodrome? We don't know. So she's technically going after the same population. Videodrome 2, where you at? 
Oh my god. <laughs> Video Drum 2. 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> Video Drummed. Video Drum Drum again. No. <laughs> Drummed again. Video Drum 2. Drum on. <laughs> okay, these are all terrible. These are We're bad. jettisoning those into the sun. <laughs> okay. So Max is on his new mission. He goes to Spectacular Optical. He um, disintegrates Harlan's hand when he tries to put a new tape in him. Oh, I love melts it right this. down. See, this is like, um, it's like uh, uh, teeth. It's, it's like he has mm -hmm. a, a rape protector inside his vagina. 100%. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Vagina dentata. Yes. And then he, this is the part that I love. I don't understand how, but basically <laughs> he just makes everybody explode. What I love, though, so, like, Harlan blows up, but he doesn't blow up. He, like, disappears. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we'll get an explosion of a TV with guts at the end Ooh, of this yeah, movie. And you're like, well, that's what I would expect when I see an explosion. Harlan is just gone. Like, in a blink. Literally, he's gone in a blink. Mm -hmm. So, of this scene, particularly the way that Harlan is handled, Cohen says... Max's transformation internally expresses fears of feminization and gender inversion, but also projects that onto others, so Harlan, but then also the cisgender heterosexual male audience members. Uh, I just wonder, I, mean, I wonder if that message gets lost or got lost on so many cisgender heterosexual men, if only because the orifice is one of fantasy. Yeah, yeah, I do wonder about that too. Like, would this be better if Max was physically transformed and everybody could see it and that was just the way it was? Like, would the message be clearer as mm -hmm. a result? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, nevertheless, I mean, this is a man getting raped several mm -hmm. times in this film. Yeah, yeah. So Max is not done with this. He still has marching orders from Bianco Oblivion to take out Barry Convex. So he goes to the spectacular optical trade show for the launch <laughs> of their new Medici sunglasses. Medici? Yeah. Medici sunglasses. Medici. <laughs> of course, Medici is an actual person famed for eyesight related things. Got it. <laughs> Clearly, I'm also a historian. You know what? That's fine. You're picking up the slack for me on this episode for that. So I appreciate you. <laughs> but this, yeah, he's convex is so happy. But yeah, it's like it's this scene where it's like you just see Max walk up, and honestly, the smile of glee he has on his face mm -hmm. when he notices convex see him. And so yeah, so okay, so he kills him, and so this is cancer that kills him in like rapid speed. Mm hmm. Yeah, either that or you could believe that uh, Convex has watched so much of Videodrome that his body is literally comprised of tumors. The cancers. Mm -hmm. well, and what makes this scarier to me, though, is that he has a hot mic on the entire time. And so, oh, yeah, this whole auditorium, it's an entire room of people watching this show. Like, literally, there's a floor show with gay dancers. Yes! And then Barry Convex just gets murdered in front of everybody. But as Max is leaving, he's like walking out of the hallway of this center and like, mm -hmm. You can hear Convex's, like, moans yeah, of pain dying. and death go, going through all the loudspeakers. I mean, also, the public face of your company is just revealed to be a massive cancerous, like, <laughs> entity. And Which, he thinks you've got a PR nightmare. That's actually something that Cronenberg is going to carry over to the fly in, like, three years as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the visual look of what happens to Convex, like, when we see what his body looks like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's transgressive. I think 
if you're thinking about that body dysmorphia, this is a potential another right. piece of that. But yeah, it definitely anticipates the fly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Max is now firmly on the run because he has been publicly identified with two different shootings. He's on the TV. So before he can get caught, he flees to a condemned ship in the harbor. It should be noted that when he goes to this ship and when he goes inside, it has the exact same color scheme as Videodrome. Yeah, it's like red wax almost. Yeah, with like touches of black. Mm -hmm. Yep. So inside the ship, he finds a TV, or does he? Question mark. And on the TV is Nikki. And this is a different form of Nikki than we've previously seen. It's a little bit closer to the version that we saw where she had the lips and he pushed his head into her. It's it's a more benevolent but seductive version. Yeah, and and almost sage, right? Like she seems yeah. a bit more at peace, but um, she informs him that he has only hurt Videodrome, but not destroyed it. So he needs to complete his full transformation. So his body has begun to change, but again, it's not complete. So he needs to kill the old flesh to become the new flesh, aka he needs to die. Okay, mm-hmm. what do you make of it? Like, do do you think this is Videodrome tricking him? Yeah, I mean, this is the question mark, right? You can read this ending in so many Mm -hmm. different ways. Like, is he a man who is having some kind of mental breakdown, whether the hallucinations are caused by Videodrome or he's just lost his mind? And as a result, he's seeing his sort of demise play out in front of him and then he follows suit. Is this Bianca Oblivion's programming? Because we're seeing yet another medium sort of uh-huh. giving him marching orders and she's getting rid of him or or right. is he really going to become whatever this new flesh is right so that's the interesting piece folks he does end up dying by suicide and the film ends you you get to see him kill himself on the tv and then he literally just mirrors it back in quote-unquote real life yeah and then we cut to black before uh we actually see it and we just hear the shot as it goes right so the original ending that Cronenberg had was that we were going to see him and Nikki in Videodrome and it was going to be kind of like a romantic like, hey, we're all here now and this is the new flesh. And apparently Cronenberg didn't like that because too many people thought that it was like confirmation that they moved on into the afterlife and he's like oh i'm an atheist so no well but the thing is though so they were going to have because nikki was going to have a chestlet um sorry both bianca and nikki were going to have chestlets like max and they were going to have right. sex organs coming out of their chestlet so which right. i actually find that interesting because it doesn't mm-hmm. say if max also has sex organs emerge so i think right. that would be really interesting if it's the female characters uh-huh. that have an external sex organ Right, and folks will have more to say on that when we talk about Infinity Pool. Yes! <laughs> like father, like son. But yeah, no, I mean, the the possibilities of this unfilmed ending are really tantalizing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I could see that it's maybe a little too straightforward for the people who want to read it as a happy ending. I love the nihilistic fatalism of this ending. It's very in keeping with Cronenberg. He doesn't end his movies happily, particularly at this stage of his career. Right. So I I do prefer this ending, but I think the possibilities offered by that other ending for new readings for 
new flashes are very interesting. But that's the thing, though. I mean, I, I find it interesting that people are reading it as the afterlife. To me, I mean, the, what what is the concept of the new flesh then? Like, what is this thing that Oblivion is wanting to do? And so it's like, to me, it's like, no, it, that's just like, I, I wouldn't have read it as the afterlife. I would have read it as, okay, cool. They made their final transformation into this this next phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, they haven't moved into a new space. They're living on video they're living yes. in a television now exactly exactly i mean i i look at it because i'm cynical and nihilistic i look at that almost as more of a purgatory if that's the case well yeah i could no, but see that that's even like a kind of after but nevertheless i mean like you're leaving i guess any idea of leaving the body mm-hmm. is afterlife yeah so, I mean, Cronenberg, like, that's literally what the concept of your movie is, or the concept mm-hmm. of, your, of what your villains are trying to do is. Yeah. The power of not confirming what happens, like, did Max just die by suicide? Does he even realize what he did? And maybe now he's just dead. Or can we believe, you know what, he did what he was told to do, and he will move on to the new flesh. He will get this kind of new experience he'll evolve and transition and so on like i love the fact that we don't know but all of those are possible readings yeah which i can see that being frustrating for some viewers but yeah it's more i mean when you have a podcast that you talk about and interpret and analyze these things on a weekly basis it makes Mm -hmm. for fun conversation so it's like i don't care i like that there are five different interpretations of this ending for sure for sure (sighs) but um but yeah uh that's videodrome that is video drone. Um, I'll go first. So this is your baby, but no, I I was delightfully surprised and happy that um that this went up. In my opinion, um, I clearly did not give this film a, a, the right amount of time to process when I first watched it about seven years ago, mm-hmm. and watching it twice for this recording. Um, yeah, I, I I really liked this. I like a lot what it's doing. I still don't always fully understand what's going on, but mm-hmm. I'm less annoyed by it now. Right. Yeah. Which is. A good place to be. There's yeah. still opportunities to unpack it further. <laughs> Especially when this is once a movie that I said that I hated. So Right. Yeah. Like folks, he was so adamant. He was like, I really don't ever want to watch that movie again. <laughs> it's not a pleasant movie. <laughs> it's not a pleasant movie. And I do think that's another sort of bar that you have to overcome. Like it's another hurdle. I think Cronenberg often has really challenging films. As I said, they're often mm-hmm. fatalistic, nihilistic. They don't end well. They're often focused on like the moral decay of society or like things just falling apart. Not always a happy place for people to be. I think that this one, it's just fascinating to me where this falls in Cronenberg's career because I do think that this is kind of the perfect transition film. Like this, The Brood, Scanners is almost a little Hollywood from what I know of it. Yeah, Um, out of that first batch, I think it's the most accessible. I I think the fly which would be mm -hmm. i think it's the one right now oh no he does the dead zone and then the fly yeah but like this is the start of like the next phase of his career where this film didn't perform financially but this really gets him a kind of traction to start getting those american stars and getting the bigger budgets and the films he's going to make from now on like dead zone the fly those are hugely commercial films yeah 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 so, yeah, so I I like this movie as like an interesting piece of his filmography. It's not my favorite. I don't love to rewatch it. I think in part because of some of the reasons that you said. It's just it's a bit dour and it's mm-hmm. a little confusing and sometimes I think the possibilities of what's happening on the margins are a little bit more interesting than Max's mental breakdown. 
but going through this uh, for the recording and seeing like trans readings of it, seeing feminist readings of it, I think it did enrich my my rewatch as well. I think so too. Um, yeah, this was uh, this was good. Evan, let us know what you thought of this, especially if this was the first time watched for you. I'd love to know what yeah. what was going through your mind as things transpired on screen. <laughs> when did you realize that what Max was seeing and what we were seeing was not always real? Oh my god! Yeah, sometimes I just need a few more cues, y'all. But I, I'll get there eventually. Well, the medium is the message, Trace. Oh my god! Long live the new flesh. Oh, also, the word f- hearing James Wood say flesh is just really gross. Ew. <laughs> but uh, all right, before we announce that we're covering next week, um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all of the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot button issues with some of our peers. And if you want to chat with other listeners, join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you'd like to show us some love, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or if you'd like even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Um, I think this is dropping on February 1st. So mm-hmm. this is um the first day of a new month, everybody. We have a Ooh. new set of uh, a new block of programming for February. And um, who oh boy, um, <laughs> welcome to February. It's a director's month, I guess, because we've got episodes on Roxanne Benjamin's There's Something Wrong with the Children. Uh, as we've already said, Brandon Cronenberg's Infinity Pool, Elizabeth Banks's Cocaine Bear, and oh <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin. And to celebrate that film, our audio commentary on the month will be on Shyamalan's The Village, a controversial film that I feel like a lot of people hated that we're going to try mm-hmm. to uh, reclaim. Yeah, yeah. Fun fact also, I mean, we said we've technically covered Cronenberg five times, if you include that guest appearance. Mm-hmm. Um Shyamalan's climbing up the ranks as well. We'll have covered five of his films before we get to Knock at the Cabin. That is fascinating to me. It doesn't even say, I guess when you've been in the business for four plus years, that's why. Well, there we go. And I mean, he's also prolific. He makes a new film every couple of years, so yeah. it gives us lots of coverage. Well, something that may not be as prolific, but is definitely going to be uh, interesting. Uh, Joe, what are we talking about next week to continue our weird sex month? Oh, boy. I feel like I have cued people to the fact that if this film ever became publicly available, it would immediately get programmed. And somehow we're actually later than everybody else. So this dropped on Shutter back in January, and we're finally getting around to it. Trace, we're going to talk about 1981's Possession. So yeah, expect more mental decline, more questioning of what the fuck is going on. But this time, more tentacles. I am very excited for this. I have been wanting to watch this for a long time, but I never... Because it's one of those ones where there's different versions of this film. There's different versions, and also it's incredibly expensive to get on physical media, and it was never available on streaming. And yes, folks, I know that there's like a kind of okay version that was like $40, I'm sorry, that's actually cost prohibitive in a physical media world. Like that's criterion prices and the releases weren't that good. So I've been waiting for like a 4K version of this to become publicly accessible. So thank you, Shudder. One day. Yeah, so I will be watching the Shudder version. You'll be watching the Shudder version. So everyone join us next week for part two of our weird month of sex with 1981's Possession. Mm -hmm. But until then, we can cross out Videodrome. Indeed, and cross out horror queers. 